welcome to another episode of My Three Books. Uh, in this podcast, you'll hear ordinary people tell us why they think their three chosen books are extraordinary. In an interview style, we'll explore together their favourite or most influential fiction and non-fiction books, with a third book being entirely their choice, whatever genre and whatever style. So come and join with us on a literary adventure. My three books are Dune by Frank Herbert, New Atlas of World History by John Haywood, When Spirit and Word Collide by Jared Cooper. Okay, and welcome to another episode of My Three Books, where we take three books, we have two microphones, one interview, and hopefully no spoilers, though I can't guarantee that. Sometimes you just have to give things away to really get out uh, of, of the story, or whatever it is, um, to really get to the meat of it. We sometimes have to give those away, but we will try our very best not to. This week, I am, I'm thrilled to be joined by Alan Rhodes, um, who's chosen some really interesting books. There's one particular big book which we'll get to, which I'm fascinated to understand why that's one of his favourite books, um, but it looks really interesting and could quite probably become one of my favourite books as well. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Alan Rhodes. Hey Alan. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Better <laughs> than the weather. <laughs> yeah, well the weather's a bit it's a bit appalling today in our in our um area of uh, of the UK. Um hopefully we'll pick this up on the on the background of, of the recording. Um we just uh, we're a small podcast right now and therefore I do this in my front uh, kind of kitchen area and uh, we have a window right above me that where the, wind, the rain is pattering down. But we'll see what we can do on the, the post-edit. Um, Alan, it is so good to have you with us. I know that your, um, your taste in books probably overlap mine quite a bit. Science, so yeah, science fiction, fantasy, but you also love just historical books, don't you? Things, historical politics. Yeah, oh, politics. So I've never I've read many political books, so right. maybe... Uh, maybe one day you can you can try and persuade me to to pick one up. Alan, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? What what do you do in in good old game show talk? Or what don't you do? Whatever it is, and uh, and just let people know a little bit about you. Okay, well um, I'm married with uh, three grown up children. I have nine grandchildren. Out of all that, um, I'm a retired civil servant, um, and basically. Uh, my days are my own now, oh. which is really nice. So do you do you just do you just read all day, Alan? Is that, oh, is that what you do? No, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't read all day. Um, <laughs> just just a large proportion just of the some day. Some of it, yes. Oh. Um, I, I like computer gaming. Um, oh wow! Okay, I mean we're not a, well, we're not yet a gaming podcast. No. Uh, but what what what's your game of choice? Well, would you believe it falls into the similar categories as my <laughs> books? That wouldn't be a surprise. <laughs> um, I like um, I like simulation games. Okay, like uh, Civilization. Civilization, uh, The Sims. Um, I like um, um, Total War. Oh, okay. So this reflects some of your personality, Alan. Would yes. you say you're a bit controlling? 
Uh, <laughs> it used to be. I've tried to give that up. I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. <laughs> Alan is lovely. He's not controlling in any way. Um, but those are games where you're obviously you're playing God, aren't you? Uh, you're playing God <laughs> or at least a, a, a dictator of some sort. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not make it sound worse than it is, Alan. All right, fantastic. Well, that's a little bit about Alan. And, and uh, we'll get on straight to his first book. So, Alan, you've chosen as your first book... The uh, well, it says on it says on there the Great June Trilogy. So I'm assuming it's is it the first book of the trilogy? No, it's all three actually. Oh, okay, okay. So book, you, but, you've um, snuck in a trilogy. Uh, yeah, well, unfortunately, <laughs> my my taste does run to um, writers in science fiction that have created a universe. Okay. So inevitably, um, there is usually more than one book. Yeah. In those, because you are dealing with um, a, a situation where it's trying to describe um, the politics, culture, and the rest of it of a universe that isn't ours. Um, so, like, uh, I suppose most people would relate it to, like, Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we've already got, what is it? Eight, nine films. There'll be now. nine films. Well, nine, well, nine, nine, nine films. main, yeah. nine main series. Out, out films, of yeah. them, uh, and in terms of books in Star Wars, there's tons of spin-offs, and it's, mm. it's fairly similar with Dune. Mm. Uh, Frank Herbert wrote at least eight books in the in the Dune universe. Wow! Um, and various other authors have picked up various bits. So this. Am I right in thinking his son also took on writing some more Dune books? As far as I know, yeah. Yeah. But but like I say, there's quite a few authors that have taken the the Dune universe and uh, or an aspect of it and tried to to fill it out because there is quite a lot. Okay. And before we just get into the, into the Dune um, um, book that you brought in today, those those ones that are written by other people. It's very quickly. Are they on par with what Frank Herbert? started or or do they just take do they take it just another slightly different direction it's got their own qualities very different Uh, and in in fairness i think frank himself uh started to run out of ideas towards the end you know the um the book for me is the first book um, and that's what i fell in love with um it it gets progressively um less incisive the more you go on uh, and sometimes the the story goes on in in the latter books a bit longer than it needs to. Okay, okay, all right. Let's let's come in. Let's get straight and then to right. to this this book, this first of what is a in in this big fat tome in front of me is is a trilogy, but it's the first book we're interested yeah. in. So could you give us a could you give us a synopsis again without trying to give too many spoilers away? But that might be inevitable. Yeah, and uh, we're all aware of that. But but give right. it your best shot. Okay. The basic story um, is dependent upon um, like a triad of of power. Um, There is the Padisha Emperor, who is um, overall of the universe, or of the known universe anyway. And uh, he is is sort of like the figurehead of the empire. you would think he had absolute power, but the more you read it, the more you realise that it's, it's very similar to pre-Augustine um, Roman Empire. Okay. In in the fact that uh, at that point in time, the emperor was the ultimate authority, but couldn't do anything without the Senate. 
And so you have the same thing in this book where the Padishah Emperor has the ultimate authority but is checked by the various houses of what's called the Landsraad, mm-hmm. which is um, each each house has basically like a planet which is its fife uh, okay. and rules over that planet uh, and it's all about political manoeuvring. Okay. Now, I just suppose, suppose that I don't want to um, assume any, anybody's knowledge, mm. uh, but let's just clarify. What's a fife? A fife. It's a feudal um, invention. It was rife in the 13th, 14th, 15th The fife was rife. The fife was rife okay. in the 13th, 14th, <laughs> 15th centuries. And basically it was that um, the lord of a particular area was almost god to the people that lived in that area. But they, in turn, had to swear fealty to um, a liege lord, somebody that was over them. Okay. In, in England, it was the king. So with that in mind, then, and you, you're saying that's what this, this has a lot of that in it. Yes. So is it, it's, it's, set, in the, well, it's, it's set in a future, I guess, um, yes. or, or another part of the galaxy, uh, far, far away, but that's another trilogy. <laughs> um, it. Is it focusing in on technology then, or is it foc- as, as a science fiction book, or is it, or is it more talking about those feudal type systems and, and Game of Thrones esque type of stuff? No, it's um, yeah. I, I think I need to tell a bit more about the backstory okay. in order to explain that, because there are there are two houses uh, that it focuses on under the Padishah Empire, which is the House of Trades and the House Arconan. Uh, House Harkonnen are the evil baddies, and House Atreides are portrayed as the moral, um, benevolent okay. house. Um, when you actually read into the book, it's not quite as clear cut as that. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, that's that's sort of the premise. And yeah, so there is in this particular galaxy a unique planet, which is Dune, hence the title. Um, it's real name is called Arrakis. Um, but this planet is the only producer of basically a drug that is t- known as Spice Melange. And That's very nicely said there. Spice <laughs> yeah. Melange. Spice Melange. I don't know whether it is French or not, but <laughs> it sounds good. It sounds like it should be. <laughs> um, and this has all sorts of properties um, that enhance the human condition. So it goes slightly into the um, the oh, the perceptions, like um, future telling, and okay, you know. Um, so does it give people powers of prophecy? Gives, yeah, or, that sort or, of thing. Or, I mean, one of the big ones is um, that, that you've got to understand is that the way that they travel from planet to planet and system to system is by um, starships that go faster than light. Oh, yeah, and in order. Because they're still in the real world. They don't use the sub-ether like Star Trek does or something like that. They're still in the real world. They're just travelling very fast. And they have um, guild navigators. And the spice gives them the ability to foretell the future so that they don't crash into another ship. Oh, right, okay. So basically... Um, this all sounds very complicated. Yeah. So if, if, if the spice melange was to be taken away from them, space travel would stop. Because people couldn't sense what was coming up. Yeah, basically. Okay. Um, there's another group, a religious group, uh, female group called the Bene Gesserit, and with them, you're very good with these names. 
<laughs> say it confidently. It's always good. <laughs> um, they have the ability to sense the truth. So they can tell whether people are lying or not. Uh, and they can also um, sort of enforce people to do things uh, by using the voice, as it's called. Okay. Um, and there's all sorts of these little things. So the, the thing is that it, it's sort of fantasy and science fiction melded together. Okay. So, so you've got a high level of um, actual scientific technological advancement. Okay, yep. So that, also, that is there. That is there, but also underpinning that, you've got um, a level that's that's more fantasy and more more fairy. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It sounds medieval. I mean, yeah. don't know what you said earlier. So it's a, it's a mixture of new and old. Okay. Um, which um, the thing about it, the, the story is that if if you if you analyze the story, it's you know, well, the reason I said the Padishah Emperor does not have uh, full authority is because there's lots of levels of people that if you take them out of the equation, the actual society doesn't function. Okay. Um, because it's been built up to a certain way of doing things. Right. And it's very reliant on the Spice Melange. Um, so the key to gaining authority and power is to control the planet that the Spice Melange comes from. Uh, now, it was in the hands of the Harkonnens. Uh, of course, I, I knew that. Yeah, uh, yep. and uh, they were, um, they fell out of favour with the Emperor a little bit, and they were removed from that position, okay. and the House of Trades were put in place. So the, the basic story is about how the Harkonnens are trying to displace the Artrades, um, basically by total annihilation. Right. Uh, and how the Atreides are trying to survive uh, with this Harkonnen pressure on them. Okay, yeah. Well, well that's, that, that's, that's what I've, I've, when I've done a little bit of research into this. It, it sounds like uh, Frank is, is, is really quite focusing in on the human condition, mm -hmm. e even down to the main, um, the main uh, narrative device being the spice melange. It, it, yeah. it, that changes the human condition, as, as you've said. It, yes. it elevates them to another level of, of being. Yes. Uh, so I understand it, and from what you've just said, so so he isn't folk. It, it has science fiction in there, but like you say, it's focusing more on the people and and yes. and and the fantastical relationships that they have with one another, and even the way that you did describe they they go around the the system, the the, the galaxy or whatever, yeah. is. Is that they need people within that, yeah. um, within that uh, machinery, as it were, to be able to foresee what's what's coming up. So yes. even 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 the science fiction bit comes back to people being right in the middle of it. It does. And and is that something that it really grabbed you about the book? The the the, the focusing on the human uh, uh, side side of the story, not necessarily the, the the science fiction side of the story. What is it that, that kind of really hooked you in? Um, uh, I think what hooked me in most of all was, yeah, that the that the interplay between the two houses in particular, because the emperor himself stands off to the side most of the story and doesn't get involved, um, and it's the it's the interplay between the Harkonnen system and the Atreides system that I found interesting because it 
it's on so many levels. It's not. It's, there is the individual levels. I mean, there's there's various descriptions of <clears throat> individual heroism in sacrificing themselves for that their house, as it right. were. Um, particularly on the Atreides side, because it follows the Atreides most. And you know, even the the, the ultimate uh, power in the Harkonnen hierarchy the the baron um he has he has ulterior motives for doing what he does even though we would prob- probably consider it is evil and it's it's to do with the furtherance of his family it's not necessarily selfish so there is a lot of personal individual characteristics that that got me hooked in okay. you know so and I, I really love you know over my life I've, I've really liked to understand psychology you know why people act the way they act um and this this book draws on that quite heavily you know it gives you descriptions of you know like that for, for every for every action there is a consequence um uh, and it, it, it builds people's characters by showing you the actions that they've had to experience and go through to become who they are mm-hmm. uh and you know the development particularly of, of the main character paul atreides the heir to the Atreides family. His journey is fascinating. Why? What? What? With that, again, without trying to give too much away, maybe pull out one or two things. What? What makes it fascinating for you? Um, it makes it fascinating because it, we, we we start following him when he's a boy of a fifteen-ish, and he's quite naive at that point. Um, and even though he has a lot of knowledge, because there's, there's been no expense spared in his education, as it were, and, and by that I don't mean just academic education. I mean education about how to stay alive, how to spot a, an assassin, that sort of thing. Okay, so so he's been taught the art yeah. of defence and yeah, attack, yeah, fight, how to fight well. Yeah, in fact, I remember mm. that it's just come to mind now. Um, before we went, started to record, we talked about it being a. Um, a TV series, being mm. a movie, yeah. being all all that, and I remember Patrick Stewart. Yes. Uh, Gurney Halleck. Okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> let's call him Patrick Stewart because I can't <laughs> pronounce what you just said. Um, uh, teaching a young boy to fight, and yes. they had this kind of shield thing around yes. him. I know that's the movie, and that's not the book, but mm. that that comes to mind. So it's that kind of education. Yeah. One on one discipleship. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, even that, that is an example of how the book is new and old, because the shield was developed to stop projectile weapons. Right. You know, um, so that, you know, if you were shot at, the shield would absorb the impact of the bullet, laser, whatever it was okay. you were shot at with. Yeah. Uh, which forced them to, to revert back to sabers. Swords and sabers yeah. and daggers and things because like that. Because you right. could go into the shield slowly and it wouldn't repel it. Okay. So it's it's very cleverly thought a lot of things through, I think. Yeah. Um, But as I say, we start with him at that sort of era where he's being taught these things um, on their home planet of Caladan. Then they get the the fiefdom of Arrakis, Dune, and they they move lock, stock and barrel to that planet. Uh, And he has to grow up very quickly because the Harkonnens start the assault more or less straight away. And just how he develops because he has to go renegade 
because most of his family gets wiped out. Okay. Uh, and he, he hides with the, the local populace called the Fremen. I think you can always tell a real fan now, though, <laughs> when you're just throwing these, these names at me. And, uh, yeah, so he hides with the Fremen, and they use circumstances in the Fremen's past that the Bene Gesserit knows about, because they've planted them there, basically. Um, and they use it to, to get this hidey hole with these people. And then he has to grow up to be a leader of these people. Okay. So, again, that is a... a yeah, something of the human condition, mm-hmm. uh, and and that and that that has obviously interested you. And mm-hmm. and does so does he grow up quickly in in the first book, or is it over? You know, no, it's the first book. So it's the first book. So he goes from child to adult. In, yeah. in the first book. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's quite quick, considering it's, that it's a longish so, book. Right. It, okay. It's of the same similar sort of length to Lord of the Rings. That sort. Of well, book. again, I read uh, as I was doing a bit of research in this. A lot of people com- say the only comparable. Uh, book or, or story or narrative is is Lord of the Rings. It's it's you know this is clearly a soap opera. It's massive. Mm. It's big, and so is Lord of the Rings. Mm. It's massive. It's big. Tons and tons and tons of characters. Yeah. Would you say that's a, a fair comparison? Yeah, yeah. But again, I mean, I think there's there's elements of Star Wars in there, right? Um, uh, and some elements of Star Trek in there. Ah. Um, now, it's published in 1966. Something like that, yeah. Something like that. Yeah, so it's the back end of the, the 50s mm-hmm. sci-fi series where, right. you know, you can tell there's a lot of the politics of that era in there. Okay, so help me out then. Help us out. <laughs> G- give, give, us, give us an example of, of that. Right, okay. Um, the, like I say, the, the, the thing is about empire um, and... That there's a lot of the American dream in it, you know. That if if you if you do what you're meant to do, then you will be successful. Okay. Uh, so dream, dream big. That yeah, that's that that ethos. The 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 Fremen, the Fremen religion, uh, to my mind, is based very heavily on uh, Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's not a copy of Islam by any strength of the imagination. So I don't want to upset anybody that is Islamic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I think it's based on it primarily. I think because it's set on a desert world. Yeah, yeah, and, and so, looks like the Middle East. Yeah, looks like those, so those areas. you know the, the yeah. only culture we have on on the earth that looks like that is there's an Islamic is Arab, Arab is, is yeah. Islamic. So yeah. he he borrows from their culture. I, I think there's a, there's a there's a fear. Uh, you know, I think the fear had started in America then about Islamic. Okay. You know the Islamophobia. Thing okay. that has grown now uh, into something. So, so even like in this book of a 1966-ish yeah. publication, yeah. that there's an element of that there's, that's there's an element in, read there. in there. Yeah, okay. there's an element in there. You know, um, <clears throat> in some ways, he does well because I think he's done research into it and he he writes sympathetically to the Islamic faith, but by the same token, um, he's He's very aware, and, and part of the book is about an impending jihad. Oh, wow. Okay. There's a... doesn't happen in the first book. Right. But there's the threat of jihad through okay, the book. Okay, okay. So explain to people again who might not be aware what you mean by that word. So right. jihad, obviously it's... It's, a... <laughs> it's an Islamic word, yeah, obviously. Yeah. J- jihad is a holy war. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a war where um, you 
expand your ideal by the sword. You know, the, 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 there was, there's always been fears, I think, in America about, uh, well, first it was communism, mm -hmm. and then it, now, then it moved on to basically Islam. Okay. Um, okay. So let's step carefully now. We don't want to. We do. We don't want to send to that kind of <laughs> podcast. But again, these are the themes, aren't they? That, they are. that, that yeah. are there in the book, and it's uh -huh. important that. Well, it's certainly been important to you to to see those things, and and he's clearly commenting on, on lots of things like that politically, like that. But also, there's an, is there an ecological part of the book or part of the series even? There is, um, because uh, the Fremen, their dream is um, that the planet will have water again. You know, there will be open oceans. Okay. Um, so. I don't want to give too much away on that because a lot of the storyline is about how that's incorporated into um, Paul Atreides' life and his rise to uh -huh. leadership, etc. Uh -huh. um, but there's this dream, and they 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 want the planet to be um, they want the planet to be beautiful again, right? You know. Uh, so was was there a disaster that had caused it to lose its water, or is that going to give far again, too much away? Again, that's a spoiler, unfortunately. Okay, all right. There okay. is a reason why the planet is desert. Right, right. Uh, and so the Fremen understand that in making the planet beautiful again, they must reserve an area of the planet for the cause to carry on. Okay, all right. That sounds like a good a good place to, to pause on that. Okay. Um, however, before we do pause on it, is there a f any final... Um, thoughts that you'd like to to comment on any any anything any particular bit ah okay Alan <laughs> is turning open the the book uh, and he's marked a certain page so there's right. clearly something here that means it means something to you Alan so go ahead right okay this is this is fairly early in the book and um, it's it's back to the psychology element of um, of a person and mm. how, how we deal with life um, and. One of the things, uh, I'm, I'm going to quote outside of the book to start with, I'm going to quote uh, Mark Twain. Okay. Right. Okay. One of the, one of there's his... a name I didn't expect to <laughs> there's a, yeah, pop up while we were actually talking in the about book, I'm, I'm very keen on people's last words, <laughs> what their dying words, what they were. Um, <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. Mark Twain, towards the end of his life, I don't know whether it's his last words or not, but he said, I am an old man and I've known many troubles, but most of them never happened. <laughs> okay. and i think as human beings we we tend to project into the future quite negatively most uh -huh. of the time yeah uh, and we're worried and anxious about what the future holds we fear we fear things that might happen and then we fear going into things that we know are going to happen when actually when they actually when they actually do happen they're not quite as bad as how we feared them okay yeah you yeah know? I mean, I've had a couple of operations recently, and I didn't look forward to any of them. No, well, I, th I, th I don't think you'd be unique in, in that. I don't think anybody um, really likes operations. But in fairness, none of them was as bad as I imagined yeah, they were going yeah, to be. Yeah. Um, and there is... Um, okay, so how then is that quote tying into what you're saying? Well, this here, is, this is um, a quote when uh, Paul Atreides is being tested in the early stages of the book by the Bene Gesserit, the religious order, because they want to know whether he's human or not because they have two classifications they have people who are human oh, right. and people who are animal right and it's all on instinct if you, okay. can over, if you can override your instinct you're human but if you can't you're an animal and how intriguing because 
part of the Bene Gesserit was that they, they were manipulating the human genome. Oh, wow. There's a whole other strand going oh, on Oh, there's here, all sorts it? going on okay, with this. Right. This Let's... is why I love it so much. <laughs> um, but he's being tested, and he's going into this test, um, and he's, he's alone with this Bene Gesserit um, reverend mother. Uh, his mother's outside guarding the door so no one can come in to rescue him. He's got to go through this test on his own, and he doesn't know what the test is. Okay. So he begins to become anxious. And so he actually starts quoting something that his mother, who is also Ben. I thought you were going to say he starts quoting Mark Twain. Then. No, no. That would be a very <laughs> weird connection. No, no. He quotes something his mother taught him because she's been a Jesuit as well. Okay. So it's part of their litany. But it's, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it is gone, well, sorry, when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. The second, your second book of choice, and this would really interest me. Uh, I mean, the, the, the first episode we had my wife Kathy uh, with a massive coffee table book, um, 365 views, days views of the Earth, or something like that. Anyway, th- so let me describe to you what I've got here. It's it's looks like almost a double A4 spread uh, mm-hmm. book. It's reasonably thick, not quite as nowhere near as thick as the June trilogy book that I'm looking at as well, but. Um, it's it's called the well, Alan. What's what is it? You you tell us what it's right, called. It's Give it the full title. The New Atlas of World History, Global Events at a Glance by John Hayward. All right. Let's just so, okay, Alan. Describe the book. What is it? What is this this unusual uh, thing that you've got in front of you? <laughs> um, well, basically, it is exactly what it says on the tin. Uh huh. Um, it's part science part um, historical, part political, in that it begins... I'm not sure it says that on the <laughs> on the tin. No, well, <laughs> I'll tell you what it is. Pass that. <laughs> so it's, it's a book that goes through human history. Uh-huh. Right? Um, and in the main, it goes through it geopolitically. But we start with early man. Okay. And the paleontologists' um, understanding of how men developed, where they developed. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is. Okay, so Alan's, Alan's opening the book now. Yeah. It, it is a lovely looking book. Oh my goodness! So there's loads of, loads of, loads of pictorial stuff. Obviously, it, it is extremely visual. So we start off the actual book. Um, with a depiction of uh, the Earth, human inhabitation of the Earth, between 6 million and 100,000 years ago. Okay. According to science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, depending on what you believe. So, there's um, parts of Africa in the early part where it shows you um, the kinds of human uh, species that they think existed at that time. Uh 
three or four coexisting together. Yeah. Uh, and then you move on onto the next page opposite it uh, on the, the first settlements and the, the first movements um, of human beings and how they moved out to uh, various points. And again, it gives you a a breakdown of, uh, for example, it looks at Homo erecticus, Homo, can't read this one, Homo rhodi. You were so good with names earlier, Alan. Rhodemus, yeah. Say it confidently, remember? <laughs> Rhodemus. <laughs> um, Homo, ne- Homo neanderthals and other human species. Okay. So it gives you coloured uh, dots as to where these were most prevalent. Right. Um, and then it moves on to give you timelines uh, of how they developed when they th- then when they came onto the scene according to scientific okay. research etc so what i'm seeing here now um there's there's like a column uh of of descriptive writing what's going on i, I would imagine i can't can't read it from here but yeah it's got, and then and then a, a whole page and a, and then another half of the page is extremely pictorial like like Alan just said there it's there's a timeline on there between the different human species what's going on in the world in different parts of the world i think as well yep um, and that seems to be, I mean, is that, is that the kind of familiar thing on every page there, Alan? Is it, is it quite, like I said at the beginning, it's quite pictorial and gives you that bit of writing? Um, it, it develops more over the time, because obviously the, the early human history is done with timelines and okay. things, uh, because obviously we're, we're relying on paleontologists, on archaeological digs, yeah. um, where they are, uh, where they think they are in the timeline, the sediment, etc., um, so it, it's pictorial in the sense of uh, you know where they think they they originated and at what point in time they think they originated, etc. Until we get to 6000 BC, which is when we start looking at uh, man's domestication of the planet uh-huh. and where that domestication starts. So when we start place. making a change to yes. our environment rather yes. than environment changing us. So so there's there's a whole way around the Middle East and the, um, the Euphrates green belt uh, and a little bit over in China okay. uh, and with uh, settlements again uh, probably Stone Age settlements at that point mm, it looks uh, fascinating yeah it is it is right up my street and it is one of those things which you'd, you obviously you wouldn't sit down to read from, oh, no. from cover to cover would you? No. you you would you would dip into it as it's, as into yeah. when you feel you, you want a little bit of uh, a little bit of historical yeah. input and, and 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 a bit of learning. Um, yeah. I think it's when we get... It, it interests me more the further on in history we get. Sure. Because we start looking at uh, the formation of people groups. You know, it's, it's not just a, a village anymore. It's, you know, uh, empires and countries and things like that. And I think the reason I like this so much is, like I said earlier, I'm, I'm, I'm into politics, but I'm also into culture. I've been fortunate enough in the, over recent years to start travelling the world. Um, You've been on some yeah, really, really nice sounding uh, some nice cruises, excursions. Uh, I yeah. love cruises. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you get to go to different parts of the world. I mean, even in Europe, we all have a, a Western mindset. Culturally, the, there are so many differences, even in Europe. You know, so when you start going outside of Europe and looking at other cultures, uh, like the Japanese culture and Chinese culture, 
Aboriginal culture. Um, Africa is endless cultures. And, and then you start going into the northern lands like Greenland or northern Russia and looking at Laps and people like that. Their, their cultures are, are so rich. Mm. Um, and we, we're quite, we, we can often get sucked into just thinking about the world history being Western yeah. history, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's it for me. Cause for I'm, those who are, who are in the West, that's, yeah. that's what we think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when I was at school um, back in the day... Um, no, it still wasn't too long ago, was it, Alan? Uh, quite well. <laughs> um, this is how long ago it was. I, I enjoyed history, and particularly geopolitics. And when I was at school, um, the map contained the British Empire. Oh, my goodness. That, that uh, does age the, you somewhat. And the French Empire in Africa and the Spanish holdings wow. all over. Uh, and uh, even the German. Okay. Pre-war. Um, these were just the maps, though, weren't these they? These were the they maps. They were still hanging around. We yeah. didn't actually have those things. Oh, we that, did. Did we? Yes. Okay. We did. All right. Because the... the um, release of the colonies sure they came about during my schooling right wow because i think i think the first one was around about 19 let me ask you a question about that then were you you've obviously been really interested in that yeah since you age cultures politics things like that so as as the british empire was in quotes releasing the colonies there's probably better ways of saying that yes um how did how did that make you feel like were you were you very patriotic and were you like why are we giving these or or were you like no these we should never have done this in the first but what what was your what was your stance Alan and how did it make you feel I mean obviously you may have changed as years have gone on and how yeah. you thought about things but uh, but right then at those those moments I don't think I don't think I've ever well no that's not true that, there was a period in my life but it was late teens when I was trying to find myself but I don't think apart from a couple of years. When I was searching for my identity, I, I've ever been nationalistic. Uh huh. Okay. Um, because, like I say, I was intrigued by the French Empire and the Spanish Empire and, and even the German holdings and the Italian holdings. Yeah. Um, so it, it was never about this is my country and, and these people belong to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was always about. I'm quite intrigued about this few years in your teenage, but we don't have to talk about <laughs> no, those. No, no. Go on. <laughs> you don't want to know about that. Okay, it wasn't, right. wasn't a good period of my life. We've all had those. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's more about why those came about. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, in the main, obviously, it was to do with superior technology that we were able to expand. But if you go back in history before that, there were still empires that didn't necessarily have a, a superior technology. Mm-hmm. They might have had superior organization or something. Not superior numbers. Is, yeah, superior numbers. Yeah. But, but in the main, the sort of 19th century was quite unique for building empires. And it was also competitive, if you read it, they each... Each major power in Europe wanted to have as much holdings overseas as possible, which is not necessarily a good thing because, you know, as the Romans found out, the more you extend your empire, the harder it is to hold it. But no, I, I didn't feel in any way that we were losing part of our identity because bearing in mind um, that as we lost the colonies, as it were, um, they still affiliated with us. We, we grew into the British Commonwealth rather mm-hmm. than... Uh, the British Empire. Um, so there was still a great number of 
connections. So as a young man, you, you still felt connected to to the world in terms of yeah. the Commonwealth then, yeah. even, even though Britain were, were, were giving back yes. uh, these parts of the world yeah. to their original owners. I think I, think I, made, I think I thought it made sense. How can yeah. you govern some... I mean, take Australia. How can you govern something that's like 12,000 miles away? How can you govern that effectively? You have to rely on the people who are there to do the job. Mm. Um, and the people who are there are indigenous usually. <laughs> yeah. It's no good sending over somebody to enforce, um, well, particularly culture, mm. on people, even though we did try to do that. Very much so. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, but, like I say, by the same token, um, it flooded back to us. You know, culture came back to us from these places. Mm. That's beautiful. So, like, a bungalow is an Indian word. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. It's a... Indian name for a one-story house. Well, so the culture started coming back to us yeah. in terms of, of language, yeah. in terms of things that we tasted, I guess, as well. Yes. You know, different things around the world. Yeah. So, so for me, the, the, the interest was how the movement of peoples in building empires and invading countries and doing all these things, how does that change the culture within them, the language within them? Mm. Um. As you know, I share a passion with you about mm -hmm. the the the, uh, the history of a word. Mm -hmm. How does a word come to be? How does it in the English language? How does it mean what it means? Um, and generally, you can trace it back to something that is outside of the British Isles. Mm. You know, it's either a Norse word or it's a French word um, or it's an Indian word. Mm. You know, and you know, and it's the same with the culture. You know, we, we bring into the country. I mean, Britain has been so many immigrants coming into Britain over the years, which I think is a good thing, by the way. Um, I, I disagree with people that think it's a bad thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not tiptoeing <laughs> too much into that political. No, we're not. Either, but but, but I, I think it enriches your society because it, yeah. it opens up far more understanding, uh, and that's what I've picked up when I have travelled places. It's you know, mm. when you start to understand why they do something. Mm. And it starts to make sense to you, then you you start to understand their culture. You start to and accept accept them. it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so with the, with that in mind, it was in, yeah. that was interesting to hear how you think and how you thought and how you mm. obviously still do. Um, but it it's clear why you like this book mm. because it is looking at those few brief pages that you show me. That it is all about how culture mm. has has spread, how it's mingled, how mm -hmm. it's. Uh, uh, how it's enriched and sometimes not sometimes the opposite yes. of, of that obviously in terms of empire and what have you um what do you go back to this book again and again is it is it a coffee table book and is it there on show is it do you do you do you leave through it regularly or is it just something you go you know I want, I want a little bit of a little bit of cultural info today i'm going to go pick up the new atlas of of world history um <laughs> i think i use it most when i'm when i'm trying to create something in my own mind about the past you know if something has struck me mm -hmm. um either as odd or even when i'm playing some of my computer games and something in it i think oh i'm not quite aware of that well, of course in civilization and, yeah. and games like that you'll definitely have elements of, yeah. of real history in there so, don't you? so where, where does that fit in you know i mean i mean if you play civilization there is uh, a civilopedia <laughs> 
which gives you a lot of history and historical facts about why they've put that in the game. Yeah, I've not looked uh, that much. But uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> but it is there. Yeah, uh, but it, it's only a like a couple of paragraphs of synopsis if you want to know more about it, because that's one of the things that I, I disliked later about my schooling was that my the history I was taught was English. It's all English history. Mm-hmm. You know, dates of battles, his, historical people. There was very, very little about anything Other outside. History. Yeah. yeah, anything outside of that. If it affected us, yes. You know, you learnt about Second World War and German. Sure. But if it didn't affect us, it was outside of that. We didn't bother with it. Mm. Um, and, and I think frustrating, but frustrating. But then I guess. They've only got so much time, Indeed. I suppose. A teacher has to... It's about, it's about um, encouraging you and, and giving you that mm. uh, incentive to want to go yes. and research more yourself, which Indeed. clearly you, you have and oh, you yes. do. <laughs> Try. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Okay. So, when some, so in other words, this book is, is for when something has piqued your interest. When yes. you've gone, oh, a minute, that sounds really interesting. I want to know a little bit more about that. You'll, you'll get this book out and, and you'll dig yeah. through it. You'll get to the appropriate time. Timeline, And, and yeah. what have you. Look it up and see what's and, going and, on around and look it. look it up. Because that's another thing is, you know, I mean, the First World War, how the First World War started, yep. has always piqued my interest. Um, how on earth Adolf Hitler got to be leader of Germany has always piqued my interest. Yeah, how did he, how does someone turn yeah. so many people it into, into a way of thinking? That's that, the point, yeah. it wasn't, uh, only 14% of the people voted for Adolf Hitler. But once he got that 14% and he was in a position to... Uh, exploit it he did with ruthless efficiency mm, mm. um you know uh, and then you start thinking about well who were the people who did support him and why uh so it, and, then, and then within that i'm thinking about my kind of knowledge of that which is probably not as much as yours it's about um the hitler youth isn't it it's, it's about hitler youth. ruling ruling the adults with fear mm. and then yeah indoctrinating but there was, the kids there was a whole swathe of people uh particularly in the agricultural areas of Germany, who thought Hitler was the man for the job. Yeah. You know, and they didn't need persuading. You know, there was an element. And then there was another element who felt, uh, particularly in the military, who felt that um, he he was righting the wrongs that had been done at the end of the First World War. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so he, he was very he was a very good manipulator. Mm. You know, there's no two ways to. to he, say he, else, but, but he came in the right time in he, history in, in for, German for, history. For Germany, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you've you got to think, well, you know, how on earth did he get there? But then mm. when you start looking at the things that are going on around yeah. Germany, yeah. you realise. You know, and so does this book give you that kind of information as well? Does um, it? Not as such, no. Okay. No, it just... But it gives you some... It gives you some hints. Mm. Um, I mean, I do have other books, other historical books that I look at. Um, That's not a surprise. <laughs> um, but, I mean, this one, because it's pictorial, mm. I, I mean, I like maps as well, full stop. Me uh, too. I love looking at maps. Do you love the idea of... How, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I've got this... This wild idea of having loads of different kinds of maps in frames on my wall. I'd, I'd love that. Yeah, well, Kathy, my wife, doesn't love that idea. That. That's why it's not happened. But <laughs> I don't think it would happen in our house. Either. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not big enough for a starter for the number of maps I'd want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I just I like I like the interchange. I like seeing how things move and you know because although it's a, a pretty picture with lots of colours, 
it actually tells you a story about where people are mm. and what's going on around them. Um, it's interesting, Alan, connecting these two books that you've just talked about. You, you have an interest in, in the human condition. You, oh, have, yeah. you have an interest, as I suppose we all should have, but mm. but clearly why the hows and whys of people mm-hmm. really intrigues you, really. Yes. It, it does something in you, doesn't it? It you, does. You want to it know does. more. I want to understand. I want to understand people. Yeah. Full stop. Because if you right. understand them... Again, but you said earlier... If you understand something, you can you yeah, can accept yeah, it. You can accept it. You, uh, you ignorance, it. ignorance, and hatred comes from not understanding. It does. Yeah. It does. Yeah. Uh, and even wow, we got I, quite deep there. <laughs> even when I don't uh, understand something, um, I will strive to. Even if I don't agree with something, I will strive to understand it. Mm. Because I think that's the only way you're ever going to find any common ground with people. Yeah, brilliant. Love it. I think that's a good, a good point. And any final word on this book? Not on this one, no, because there isn't anything that you can lift out as, you know, this is the quote of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it all depends on what I'm looking into at what point. Yeah. to our our final book and the final book is a free choice so this is whatever Alan in this particular instance wants to choose, he could have chosen a recipe book, a car manual um, a catalogue if he'd have so so wanted that would have been a bit weird but I would have accepted that and would have talked about it but thankfully he hasn't, uh, at least for my interest, he hasn't chosen a catalogue to work through, Um, he has chosen a book called When Spirit and Word Collide by Jared Cooper. Okay, right. Now, just to stress again, this isn't a Christian podcast, um, but I am a Christian. I do have a Christian worldview. Um, but within the podcast, I, w- I want to try and um, draw out all sorts of different worldviews from people, if that's what they have. But Alan is also a Christian mm-hmm. as well. And so this book that he's chosen here is a Christian book. So if you're not a Christian, you're not that way inclined, um, don't, don't let... I don't. I don't want you to be put off. I want you to let, let me encourage you to listen. See see what Alan has to say about this book. Um, I have read it. I think it's an excellent book too. Um, and there's things in it which we can certainly pull out. So with that kind of caveated thing in mind, um, let's let's dig in. So Alan, why this book? This book has probably had the most impact on me uh, in my life. That is that's quite a statement. Okay, so let's dig out more. Why? Right, okay, why? Um, I bought this book some time ago, and a couple of years ago we went on one of our cruises, <laughs> <laughs> as we are wont to do. Um, and we were going around Italy, France, and Spain in the Med, uh, and going to lovely places. Um, but I started reading this book on the journey. And instead of it being a holiday like other holidays, it became more like a convention with um, attractions to visit. Okay. Um, because I found myself reading this book and being stirred as to 
the state of the church. Um, That's church, big C. Big C that, church. Like global the, church, yes, that kind the of The whole thing. church. Okay. And the state of uh, individuals in it uh, and what what we need to do to to get to a point where we're actually reflecting what we believe. The book itself is based on um, a forward prophecy by a man called Smith Wigglesworth, who uh, in 1947, he was a, uh, a preacher in Bradford, and in 1947... he did, a local city to where we is, are in yeah. Leeds. Yeah. Uh, he, he gave a prophecy, quite a short one, just define prophecy again. Right. I, don't, I don't want to assume everybody listening has a Christian worldview. So just define that for me, if you could. Alan. Well, I, I think prophecy, in in the sense that Smith Wigglesworth gave it, is very much as as non Christians understand it. it. It was a foretelling of future events. Okay. Prophecies can be more than that. What, like Nostradamus? Um, not quite as. Um, I, I would class him as a prophet, but oh. not in the same uh, sense as. Smith Wigglesworth. Okay. Yeah. Smith Wigglesworth, um, for the Christian, a prophecy is something that God speaks. Okay. Right? And can foretell the future or can open up um, a particular situation that is happening there and then. Um, so it's a bit wider than the the worldview generally of, yeah. of prophetic. And, and so when I said Nostradamus, yeah. obviously I know that those two yeah. things are different, but, but that yeah. Nostradamus would be those things that... A non-Christian. So certainly, when I was a kid, yeah, I had the the prophets prophecies of Nostradamus yes. book on my bookshelf, and yeah. it's you know that they're, they're generally four lines, I think they were, or something right. like that, and and they would they'd be so vague, <laughs> uh, but you could plant whatever you wanted onto them. Indeed, and I know that some people might accuse some Christian prophecy of, of being of a similar nature but in terms of Nostradamus it was you know it's foretelling the end of the world but when you read the actual things go well only if you read it into it yeah. whereas um for uh christian prophecy mm-hmm. it it hopefully should be a little bit more detailed Indeed. than that and, and should have much more of an impact mm-hmm. uh, on the church as well as outside of the church yeah, as well i agree okay i agree so prophecy that smith wigglesworth gave is probably only what four paragraphs long um and it deals with the church mm-hmm. universal and what what smith wigglesworth thought god said to him about what would happen with the church after 1947 so there was three things that were going to happen according to smith wigglesworth um there would be firstly um a charismatic revival in the church okay which is um the gifts of the holy spirit so speaking in tongues prophecy words of knowledge healings that sort of thing okay um Again, there's a few things in there that if you're not a Christian, you might mm. you might be aware of, but, but you might not be. In, we haven't got I haven't got time to go into no. those things right now, so I'm going to encourage you to go and look at those things. But yeah. go yeah. ahead and continue. So, so there's, there's this charismatic renewal, which which d- happened probably in the late 50s and 60s, where people started to exhibit a supernatural understanding of their faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and operating in that, and so it, a demonstrative, yeah, active faith, not absolutely. just not just one that's full yeah. of liturgy. Or and I mean, most people would understand it outside of the church as the Pentecostals, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't happy clappy church. Yeah, it, it wasn't um, just the, the Pentecostal church. It was happening in Catholic churches, C of E churches, 
Baptist churches, Methodist churches, sorry, um, and generally across the board, there were uh-huh. groups in each church who were finding this charismatic element to their faith. Um, then the second part of the, the prophecy talked about people uh, becoming disillusioned with the standard churches that were in existence, the denominations that were in existence at that time, uh, and moving out of those into new churches. So what what decade are we talking here? Then? I think that's probably carries on after the 60s, so from the, the late 60s, 70s, 80s, um, a little bit in the 90s, but by but most, most of the 70s, most 80s. Of the 70s, 80s, yeah. Uh, where people moved out and and larger churches happened. Um, Again, outside of the church, most people will be aware of the the American versions of these, uh, which some are very good and some are cringe-worthy. Okay. (laughs) Um, But it happened to an extent in in Britain as well. A bit more under the radar, though, Mm. I would say. Again, again, being someone who grew up not a Christian and, and only came to faith in my mid to late 20s, um, I was completely unaware of this charismatic yeah. church. Uh, as far as I was concerned, church was, you know, smells and bells yeah. and frocks and socks. You know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was very much the Anglican. Yes. Uh, that's what I thought Christianity was, the Anglican thing or the Catholic thing. I had mm-hmm. no idea that this charismatic underbelly, as it were, yeah. as, I, as I perceived it to be anyway in my first few years of, of becoming a, a person of faith, um, I... I, I didn't know it was there. I didn't know it existed within within that. No. So maybe I, I was aware of an American thing, you know, the televangelists yes. and all that kind of stuff. Yes. Um, but but like you say, it wasn't so much noticeable to those outside of the church. No. It wasn't. But definitely within the church, there, yes. was, there was something big. Yes. Going on. There was. Yeah. I think I think being being part of the move because when I when I came to faith, I, I joined the Baptists. Um. And I was in the Baptist faith for, that sounds wrong, the Christian, the Baptist version of the Christian faith okay. <laughs> uh, until um, the early 80s. Um, but I, I got very disillusioned, and, and my wife with me, with the process that the Baptist church used to pick its leaders in particular. Um, and there was, there was a very large amount of politicking in the church and personally I don't believe that politics belong in the church or necessarily that the church belongs in politics mm-hmm. you know it's I know there are various ways of looking at that but my version is they're quite distinct mm-hmm. um, so we ended up because we got so disillusioned moving into a charismatic church so it was almost by accident was it or, or did you purposely seek no we, no we, <sighs> Yeah, it was more by accident because we'd started going to meetings in Bradford, one of our local cities, um, of a charismatic church that was in Bradford. Um, we had no intentions of joining that particular church, but we liked their meetings. We liked what was going on in their meetings. Um, and we liked, when we looked into it, we liked the the ethos behind what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, in retrospect, there were some things that the church of that ilk has now jettisoned because they were a bit extreme, mm-hmm. um, which is good. But it was still, even at that stage when there were things wrong in it, it was still better than the politicking that we'd left behind. 
Um, and just just to dif- just to say, the wrong in your in your in view, my opinion. Your, yeah, yes, yeah, obviously, yeah. wrong for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so we moved out, and and this you know there were quite a, a number of churches built at that time around well around the world really uh, that were of this charismatic ilk, but not of the established church. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the third thing that Wigglesworth prophesied was that there would be um, a coming together of traditional ways of doing church and charismatic ways okay, of doing so church. Okay, so define the traditional ways right. of doing church in your view then. What, Tra- what traditional ways of doing church are with um, some form of liturgy uh, that is followed, uh, with a heavy emphasis on the word. That's that's the Bible. The, word, the Bible, and it, and its teaching, um, and and quite an academic um, viewpoint. Mm. Yeah. I suppose again, I don't want to make any assumptions about people's knowledge of of church goings on. Mm. Uh, liturgy, quickly define that for us, Alan. Right, liturgy is a, a prescribed way of doing something. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Um, so that, you know, basically if you go to a, a Church of England church with a, a, some slight variations, you will attend the same service throughout the country. Yeah, they have a set way of yes. doing things, yeah. set things to say, Indeed. even yeah. set prayer times, yes. and even set prayer. Set prayers, yeah. So that, that would be all so part it's, of it's the all, It's all okay. written down beforehand. Okay. It's a script. So so um, you say that this this third part? Of, of what Smith yeah. was saying is about bringing, bringing some of that, that tradition which which was based around the word the Bible mm-hmm. together with the more charismatic, charismatic okay which is based on what we term as the Holy Spirit yeah and the moving of that uh, of that person so um, that's not happened yet um, so what do you mean then so so are we saying that because you you said at the start there that when we were talking about this book that um, the charismatic renewal mm-hmm. was about all sorts of different kinds of churches, mm-hmm. Anglican, you know, um, Baptist, Methodist, whatever, kind of in, beginning to encounter uh, the Holy Spirit moving and, mm. and doing things, like you said, healing and prophetic word and words of knowledge and what have you, speaking in tongues and stuff like that. But then you just said those things haven't happened yet. So, right. so help us... Help us understand, because obviously this relates very heavily yeah. to the book and what the book is about. It's about those two things yeah. coming together. So, but the, the so thing was that, that what was happening in, in the late 50s uh, into the 60s, 70s, 80s um, was that there was more division in the church. You know, but people understand that the church has divided into denominations down the centuries, uh, and that kind of thing was happening again in that there were people in the churches who held to a charismatic understanding of faith, and there were people in the church who held to a traditional sense of faith. Um, and largely, they were at loggerheads. Okay. Uh, I'm not saying that happened in every church, because there will be no doubt churches throughout the world where yeah. they've, they've existed together, but it's been very few and far. So those loggerheads were people, what a group believing that the spirit doesn't move in the way that that's, the charismatic suggestion he does, and obviously the charismatic's going well, yeah. no, he is moving the way yeah. that, that, that he does. Oh, and and even to the point of, I mean, like I said, the politics in the church I, I was in, 
which obviously I'm not going to name, um, but it was a case of that politically in terms of choosing, choosing the leaders, the traditional members prevented the charismatic members from getting into leadership. Okay, okay. You know, but through politics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, most of those in the charismatic section of the church that I belonged to at that time were quite happy if it had been divided, you know, with some traditionalists and some charismatics. But the traditionalists didn't seem to want that. Okay. And I think that happened quite a lot. Okay. So so there was, rather than bringing people together... It was dividing. It was beginning to divide yeah. people. And I think the growth of uh, the charismatic churches in the 70s and 80s was largely fueled by people who got fed up with the argument between the two sections and moved into something separate. Something altogether. separate. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, Smith Bugor's prophecy is about those those two aspects of church coming back together. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and and then so what does ja- so so the book is by Jared Cooper. Jared Cooper is a pastor of a church in Hull. I think it's Revived Church, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, he wrote this. How many years ago did you write this? Uh, this was in only in 2015. Okay, so a really recent book yeah. in the last three, well, four years. What's Jared got to say about it then? So if, there, if there's this prophecy that you know charismatic Christians are, are aware of, they know about, what's why is this so significant? I guess why is it so significant to you that Jared is talking about it? And why is Jared talking about it? Uh, I cannot go into everything because, mm-hmm. like I say, it was... It was such an impact. There were so many things that I felt out of this book that I am still looking into. Um, I'm still trying to get my head around of what I do about trying to do something about these things. Um, because it, it, it's the entire uh, aspect. It's not just one aspect of church, like whether you believe in the Holy Spirit or not. It's about prayer, it's about worship, it's about uh, administration of churches. It's the whole gamut of church life that he lays out and how how he feels um, where it's succeeding and where it's not succeeding and how we can change that around. Mm. Um, you obviously agree with him on a lot of his, his I do. statements. I do. There's one or two things, like yeah. there always is, that... Yeah. I think I'm not so sure about that. But in the main, I agree with him. And I, and I think, again, it, it comes down to... <laughs> I've got to come back to what I've done with the other two books. It comes down to psychology, motivation, yeah, um, and, and how people respond to one another and the culture that we're living in. Because even though we have a British culture, within that there are subcultures. Mm, the church being... Uh, the church is one, and... The church has a culture, but also the church has subcultures itself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it it, get, it gets quite deep when you start thinking about it and trying to sort it all out is mm. is difficult. But I think this is one of the things because my parents, um, one of which is dead now, but they they are and have always been from when I became a Christian, Anglicans. And I have nothing against an Anglican church because I used to go with them to their services on occasions um, and follow the liturgy. So I have no problems with how they do things. It's just limited in my view. 
mm. as to you know if, if we're going to act as a as a whole church then we need to be together in it um and, and this this little section here i'd like to read it out because, mm, sure so i think it encapsulates what i feel we need to be as a global church how we need to respond uh, and first of all that starts with self-reflection are we being a hindrance to the church or are we being a help to the church so um the the little paragraphs are entitled the extremes are being drawn together in times past exponents of both the word that's the liturgical one and spirit that's the charismatic one emphasis have defended the rightness of their respective positions with a harsh arrogance but times are changing i sense we are finally putting our spiritual l plates back on and realizing that it's time to come together and see large well-organized miracle working word and spirit field churches populating on our land in this season the following quote is ringing in my ears in times of change learners inherit the earth while the learned find themselves beautifully prepared for a world that no longer exists. Eric Hoffer. A shift is taking place. It's time to admit that none of us has all the answers. Soften our hearts and listen to the wisdom, experience and expertise of brothers who inhabit cultures different to our own. We all have something to learn. Mm. And you can apply that. Oh, across the board yeah, across but, the board okay but yeah. certainly within this context it's yeah. talking about the church but yeah i mean this is what i mean i think it's this this idea of once you understand a culture that's different to your own in whatever sphere of life you're in if you understand it you can accept it and once you've accepted it you can begin to work with it um even if you don't agree with it mm -hmm. you know you, you can find the common ground and we can we can bring out the humanity in each one of us rather than trying to judge and denigrate each other. We, we can find common ground and, and work together to build something that's better than we have now. Alan, thank you. So that was episode number two. I hope you enjoyed listening to it and finding another three possible books to add to your collections. But look, even though this is a podcast about books, it's not just about books. It's about the people that read them too. And I think Alan is a fascinating character. And I'm sure we could have dug a little deeper into all sorts of stuff if we had had all the time in the world. Please join me for episode number three and... While you're waiting for that to drop, I would really appreciate it if you would share the word about this podcast. And there are loads of ways that you could do that. Like sharing the link to the podcast from your preferred podcast provider, all the P's, uh, on your social media platforms. And word of mouth goes a long way too. But what is especially helpful is if you actually subscribe to the podcast. Click that little button that says subscribe. Um, leave a positive rating and a review and uh, especially I believe in Apple Podcasts that's like the, the daddy of them all and 
if we can get somewhere on that platform then it'll be a big step in getting my three books a, a, a bigger audience and as always i invite comments and feedback via our social media channels just search for my three books except on twitter where you'll have to write the number three instead of the word three now i'm not bitter about not being able to get that twitter handle at all can you not tell Anyway, of course, I'd love to hear from you via email as well at hello at my3books.co.uk. Until next time, happy reading. Welcome to the end bit of the podcast, the bit where I say thank you for listening. No, genuinely, thank you. There are quite a lot of podcasts to choose from and you chose to spend your time with this one. If you liked what you've heard, please make sure you subscribe. And if you could leave a rating on your preferred podcast provider, that would be so helpful in helping this podcast reach more people. Please do get in touch via our social media accounts if you'd like. Oh, and share the love via the links. Word of mouth also helps too. Visit my3books.com for all the info.